นโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะกวาทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามัสสะเ
He was the, the son of a chieftain of the area, probably Nepal these days, and a very wealthy, privileged upbringing on every level, and he was good at everything he did and had a very good time. Until, around the age of 29, he came across old age, sickness and death, and that turned everything upside down for him. And from that point on was this great doubt, this great question arose in his heart and his mind, is this all there is? Is there any alternative to this? Is there liberation? Is liberation possible? Well, fortunately, in his case, he had made all sorts of vows in previous lives that meant that he had the intuition, the inclination to seek the path of liberation. Uh, this inclination had arisen in the Buddhist consciousness many lifetimes before, and so when it arose again at this age of 29, it wasn't just the time for wringing his hands and gnashing his teeth and thinking it's all impossible and going out and taking drugs. It was rather a matter of re-engaging with that heart longing for truth. And so that heart's longing for truth meant that he flipped out of the indulgence in pleasure into the denial of pleasure. And so then we have the, the records tell us of the years of great asceticism and the Buddha likewise excelled at being an ascetic and tried every form of renunciation for several years until he nearly died and realized that didn't work until he came across the realization of what he called the middle way. It's between the two extremes of indulgence and pleasure and denial of pleasure or indulgence in pain. Beyond these two, he realized the middle way. And that was his teaching for the rest of his life. For all the years he lived, he taught in many ways and many occasions uh, ways to realize and to cultivate what he called the middle way. And so that's what this discourse, the Dhammachaka Sutta, is about. Uh, explaining it, analyzing it, and giving guidance on how to live it. And so over and over again in the Buddha's life, he, he referred to this middle way and how to live a life that accorded with it. Because he wanted us to have the realization that he had. He didn't want us to just believe in it. and absolutely wasn't his style at all. He wanted us to have experienced the freedom, the putting down the burden, the actuality of his realization. And so, yes, as I said in the scriptures, it's referred to many times, uh, one of the Dhammapada verses where the Buddha talks about, he said, all confinements fall away for those who've gone beyond the two. Now, when scholars get a handle on this verse, uh, all confinements fall away for those who've gone beyond the two. They tend to speculate and uh, sometimes even argue about what the Buddha really meant by the two. Probably some of them think he was talking about Advaita Vedanta or, or maybe they think he's talking about the Samataring Vipassana. Or... In my own contemplation on this, I, I like to think he, he was talking about these two extremes. Yeah. The habitual inclination is we indulge in pleasure and that works for a while, but then we get depressed or miserable or upset or the conditions change, whatever, and then we indulge in pain. We get lost in that until we find another treat and then we get lost in pleasure again and we flip-flop between pleasure and pain and, and the cycle of getting born into pleasure and dying out of pleasure, getting born into pain, and it does feel endless. You know? 
You go on a holiday, you get all excited about booking this holiday, go on the internet, look at all the photos, you know, buy your euros, although they're very expensive apparently these days, and uh, people sort of laugh about it, but <laughs> not that funny really. Uh, kind of painful, what's going on? And, and then, But you book your holiday, you're really excited about it, and you've got your, your organic you know, mosquito protection and your, your really healthy suntan lotion and, and your latest suitcase. You're really revved up for a great holiday and, and then everything goes and you get to the airport and the flight is overbooked because that's what airlines do. They overbook and then they offer you a first-class ticket on another flight but you've got to stay in a, a boring hotel the night before and then you arrive a day late and by that time they've rebooked your apartment to somebody else because they thought you were in here. And so you get born into disappointment and... And then they put you in another hotel and there's a building site next door and, and then you come down with a stomach disorder and, and then you fall out with your travelling companion and you come back and file for divorce. <laughs> sort of thing. You know, you know what I'm talking about. So there's this getting born into pleasure and then dying out of that and getting born into pain. And, but the Buddha wanted us to understand there is an option of going beyond these two. And if we understand this... If we investigate this for ourselves, if we dare to investigate this, and this is how I understand the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, it's an invitation to dare to surrender to reality. Instead of indulging in these distractions of pleasure and pain, the Buddha is inviting us to dare to stop these habits of indulgence, dare to let go of our distractions, dare to free ourselves from our addictions, and just face reality. Now, this is the training, how to face reality, how to train our faculties so that we don't just default to distraction. You know, we don't have, the, generally speaking, we don't have the, even the mindfulness, the discipline of attention to know that we're struggling. First noble truth, four noble truths, the first one is suffering, struggle, frustration. Often we don't even know that we're caught up in, in frustration and struggle. We're just already in our distraction habits. Yeah. We're already trying to blame somebody or get rid of it, or, rather than accepting, rather than opening up and feeling the actuality, which is pain. The first of the Four Noble Truths, the realisation of that, that already takes a mindfulness, it takes a discipline, it takes a concentration, it takes a restraint. All of these spiritual faculties already need to be in place and... Uh, many of us, much of the time, we don't even have those spiritual muscles developed so as to do the spiritual work. But that's why the Buddha spent so much time giving so many teachings in so many different ways to different people so that we could be inspired to do this work. And as far as I'm concerned, I must say I think, uh, well, I'm, I'm convinced this is the greatest conceptualization of reality ever, that any human being throughout all history, all history of humanity, uh, this is the greatest conceptualization of reality that's ever been produced. Now, it's not only because it's simple, pragmatic and straightforward and applicable, but it's because it brings the greatest benefit. That's why it's the greatest conceptualization of reality. I was talking to a, a young chap who was visiting us recently and he was telling me about his belief system and, and the YouTube videos that he watches of his teacher and, 
Then he told me in a, in a way that sounded like he expected me to go along with him. He said, well, you know, obviously nobody really knows, do they? It's all novelty. And then carried on with his argument that was aimed at convincing me. And, and I, I just had to tell him that I, well, I fundamentally disagreed with that. I happen to believe that there are people who do know, and that's the point of spiritual masters and why one gives oneself out of confidence, out of respect, out of trust in the spiritual masters because one does trust that they know. It's what the Buddha referred to in Pali, the Pali language, jnana dasanang, jnana dasanang. Jnana, knowledge, dasanang is seeing, or so we translate jnana dasanang as insight knowledge. This is different from the kind of knowledge that we might have which you've often heard me speak about, or referred to as knowing about things. We all have loads of that knowledge. We know about stuff. But do we really know stuff? Jnana, there's all sorts of jnanas, all sorts of knowledges, but jnana dasanang is that kind of knowledge which means that it's irreversible, unshakable, fully, thoroughly known. Like a practical, mundane example of, you know, the difference between knowing about and knowing is like, you know, you know people can ride bicycles, but that doesn't mean to say you know how to ride a bicycle. I don't know, can you remember what it was like learning to ride a bicycle? I can. I can still remember riding down Studham Street in Morrinsville, Waikato, New Zealand, you know, with somebody, probably my brother, holding the, the saddle behind, you know, running, and then he'd let go and I'd wobble and fall off. That's what happens in the beginning, because we don't know how to ride the bicycle. That's normal, isn't it? And then one day, you're riding along and you say, let go. He said, I've already let go. <laughs> you knew how to ride the bicycle. You didn't even know you knew how to ride the bicycle. And you've learnt it. You've really learnt it in the body. You've thoroughly learnt it. Now, this really speaks to me, because I had the experience of some years ago, I hadn't ridden a bicycle for many years. I mean, many, many years. And somebody gave us some bicycles. And so I jumped on it and went for a ride. I could still ride the bicycle because one had thoroughly learnt it. Now, I'm not saying that liberation is like riding a bicycle. There's a lot more effort involved. But something like that, you know, that kind of knowledge is what the Buddha was talking about. Insight knowledge, not spurious knowledge. You know, we all know about things. You can, you can have a nice flat pack from Ikea and have the manual which tells you how to construct it. But there's a big difference when you get all those screws and plugs and things laid out on the floor. You know, can you do it? You know, can you do it? You've got the manual, you've got the flat pack, but can you construct the bookcase? It takes a different sort of effort, doesn't it? Or reading a map. You've got a map, and it's supposed to be a reliable map, and and, um, you're making your way through some city or other. And You know, when you're looking at this map and you're telling the driver, now turn left, but actually, does left on the map mean left on the road, or are you supposed to turn it around? Well, then it's all upside down and you can't read anymore, so you've got to turn it back up again. You've got to do these kind of mental gymnastics with your brain, and you've got to imagine, is it left or is it right? And, and, And then also the... The distance on the map, say that distance there, well, how far is that distance actually? Translating the details, the data on the map, into an actual experience is a whole different phenomenon. 
So this is why the Buddha emphasized over and over again that his teachings, including the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and this discourse, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta that he had, is not just something to believe in. It's not just like a holy book that you put up on the shelf and then bow to. It's much more than that. It's a, it's a map that we need to learn to translate so that we can meet experience in the moment that the experience is happening. Now, there may well be all sorts of other truths around that are much more interesting and fascinating and exciting, like this young chap who was talking to me the other day, he was coming up with all sorts of amazing theories about reality that were quite mind-boggling. And compared to the Four Noble Truths, that's much more interesting, pretty psychedelic, really. There's a recorded incident of when the Buddha was in the forest with his disciples and he was alluding to this phenomena of all the interesting facts there are around, all the truths that there are that we could be investigating and even coming to understand. And so to illustrate it, he picked up a bunch of leaves from the forest, the floor of the forest, and you might have heard this expression where the Buddha refers to his teaching as a handful of leaves. And he asked his disciples, he said, which is greater, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest or the leaves in my hand? And the monks replied, well, obviously, Lord, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest are much more, much greater than the few leaves in your hand. And the Buddha replied, and so it is. The truths of existence are much greater than what I've taught or what I've known, he may also have said. He said, but what I've taught is what pertains to liberation. There's all sorts of things we could be investing our energy in, which is absolutely riveting, fascinating stuff that may well be true, but it's not necessarily going to liberate us from suffering. It's not going to teach us that jnana-dasanang. It's not going to give us that seeing, which means we know the difference between sapawa dukkha or natural pain of life and dukkha dukkha or suffering plus, pain plus. There's normal pain and then there's pain plus. Sapawa dukkha is just the pain of life. You you get born, you've got a body, you stub your toe, it hurts and that's painful. But do we have to jump up and down and then curse the step and make a problem out of you know why that step was there? That's, That's pain plus, that's the extra pain, that's what we add to it. Now getting to see that is what the Buddha wants us to know, the difference between what is and what we add to what is, or take away from what is. We're always adding and taking away from what is and complicate life, and therein we suffer terribly, terribly, and it becomes an addiction. We're actually even addicted to suffering. We get so used to it that the idea of letting go of our problems, our burdens, our suffering is unthinkable. which is a tragedy, which is no wonder that took the Buddha so long before he decided to teach. He just looked around and just said, what a bunch of idiots. (laughs) How could they possibly be getting around, causing themselves so much suffering, and then blaming somebody else for it? But thankfully, the Buddha did realize that there are those, and the expression is, with but a little dust in their eyes. And so he did give the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and all the rest of the teachings that he gave. So that we can pick up these teachings and then also dare to surrender ourselves to the investigation mm-hmm. so that we can approach and perhaps uh, realise eventually these truths for ourselves. Mm-hmm.
And so this needs to be emphasized that we're not just talking about getting the intellectual knowledge, but we're invited to apply our own interest, contemplate for ourselves. Yes, we can read books. Yes, we can listen to talks, uh, see what other people say about these things. But how does this work for me? How does the Four Noble Truths work for me to really feel we've got permission, and we do have permission, to bring our own creative interest into contemplating these things. Hmm. Now, we're not talking about a, uh, an arrogant, uh, uh, contracted, rigid sort of investigation, because you know, the preliminary to doing a lot of these practices is, is basically a good foundation in, in sila. Uh, we, we can't really build up intensity, the intensity that's going to take us deeper in our practice if we don't have a firm foundation in integrity. If we're compromising integrity, then as soon as we start to build up some intensity, we start to wobble and start to freak out. It's like I remember when, as a, as a teenager, I remember my brother having his first car. I think it was a Ford console. This was in about 1967 or f- five or something like that, <laughs> quite a while ago, and uh, and it was a real old heap. This this car that my brother bought, I would go out for rides with him in it, and if he started to go over 35 miles an hour, the wheels would, <laughs> and the whole thing would shake. Why? Because the wheels weren't balanced. The engine could make it go faster than 35 miles an hour, but the car couldn't handle it. You know, the wheels weren't balanced, and he didn't have the money to fix them and get them balanced, so, so he could never go very fast. It wasn't much fun. Yeah. Well, spiritual life, is, in that regards, is the same. We can't build up much intensity. We can't get very far. We can't deepen in our practice if we don't have an elevated degree of self-respect, which comes out of a commitment to integrity. If we're still falling into habits of compromising integrity, of indulging in hubris, of indulging in arrogance, and, and telling ourselves stories about what's going on, if we still have these habits of indulgence, we can't f- really afford to build up too much intensity. And the organism knows this. You know, we just won't do it. It just won't happen. Well, if we're really forceful, if we're really seriously conceited, maybe we can put ourselves under rigorous discipline and, and then totally throw ourselves out and have a nervous breakdown, which tragically does happen, even if we have ostensibly noble aspirations. We can still throw ourselves tragically out of balance. So, so that's not what the Buddha wanted us to do. He did want us to investigate. I'm sure the Buddha would have praised the scientific model, you know, test these things. Take this for yourself, like the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. Take it, as he did, test it, test it, test it, until there's the real conviction, the real understanding. The second noble truth, the the truth of the origin of suffering. Take it, consider it, test it, test it, test it. The third noble truth, if we get that far, the, the cessation of all suffering. Take it, test it, test it, test it. That's what scientists are supposed to do. They're not just supposed to come up with arguments that humiliate people who have a different idea about it and then promote their own idea. 
because it happens to benefit those who are sponsoring their experiments, uh, that's not good science. Uh, good science doesn't posit something as real until it's really thoroughly tested it. And the fourth noble truth, the path that is both the approach to and the expression of the freedom from all suffering, to be tested thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Now, if we don't do this, we can still have all sorts of convictions and enthusiasm and, and we can be Buddhist fundamentalists you know, going on of, in very clever ways about the, the Buddhist path of practice. And it's, it's, uh, it's not difficult to become a Buddhist expert and you can read endless books about the subject. But when it comes to that point where pain impacts on the heart... Do we have the readiness to open to it and receive it, the steadiness to stay clear, the gentleness and the patience to wait, and the disciplined intelligence to ask the right kind of questions and investigate and see the actuality of the pain? Or do we just default to one of our habits? Collapsed awareness, unsteady attention, impatience, and then disappointment and frustration. So, yes, the uh, conceptual understanding is very important. Of course, we we need need to be clear on that level. But that's like opening the door, come into the temple. Yeah. You could spend a lot of effort to get out to the to the temple and approach the door and then just stand there. Yeah. The point is to open the door and then go in. Yeah. And so here what we're talking about is going into, deepening into, daring to deepen into a whole different way of relating to experience. Letting go of our, the false security of conceptual understanding. Most of us here, I would expect, probably recognise what it's like to be addicted to being right all the time. I love being right. I just love it. I love people recognising when I'm right. On the ego level, I like being right. I like winning. I like being sure. But all of that hasn't liberated me. So what do we need to do? We need to train to be willing to let go of our habit of feeding on the pleasurable sensation of being right. That's the training. That's very different from just believing what we see in a book. It reminds me of what a uh, a good friend of mine, uh, as I've often quoted before, the Venerable Miyokyoni, a a Zen nun who trained for many years in Japan. She was a, a, a doctor of geology before she went out to Japan and and a very uh, astute and, and capable person. And uh, when it came to uh, teaching Dhamma, she was also very articulate and very practical in her descriptions of, of the path and the risks that one might encounter along the path. And I'm, I'm very indebted and very grateful for the friendship that I had with her. But she used to often talk about how when meditators of even different traditions come together, there's 
a gentle nodding of heads in agreement. But when scholars of even the same tradition come together, there's a regular shaking of heads and disagreement. Because that's as far as scholarship takes us. If we're still holding to the concepts, then even if our concepts are right, we make them wrong by clinging to them. Or as Ajahn Chah said, even the Buddha's teaching on right view becomes wrong view if you cling to it. So if our, our investment in scholarship takes us to the application of these principles and then the, the uh, deepening of investigation, approaching insight for ourselves, that's what the Buddha was looking for. And so meditation uh, is really at the core of this practice. Again, the, the discourse on the, that the Buddha delivered, the turning of the wheel of law was, again, an invitation for us to pick up these practices in daily life, but also meditation, yeah. formal meditation, putting actually putting time aside so that we can it's like build up the heart strength, the spiritual heart. Yeah. We've got to look after our physical heart, but the spiritual heart, that point of balance that needs to be cultivated. And again, the invitation takes daring, But it also takes great caution and patience. There's uh, many different ways of approaching meditation. For some people, meditation is the exercise in relaxation. And that's fine. Absolutely fine. Some people, they uh, get into uh, the other levels of meditation, like concentration or investigation, and they're so keen to progress and practice that they forget to... Relax, and and then you know you start building up concentration or investigations, and maybe you do start to pull apart some of your uh, precious mental structures. But you don't have the ease, you know, the, the body, the nervous system is not sufficiently centered or balanced or at ease to be able to accommodate all the energy that gets released. You know, when we let go of some of these these deeply held structures, some of them held for a very long time, when we let go of them, energy's released. We need a very relaxed, open, accommodating system to be able to deal with that, that energy. So relaxation is a very important stage of meditation. I encourage people to use visualizing floating in water. Yeah. Coming from New Zealand, I know what it's like to float in a nice warm ocean. I spent a very long time doing it when I was a kid. And it takes a little bit of skill initially. Do you trust the water to hold you? Like the idea is if I let go completely, I'm going to sink. That's not reality. What you need to do is let go and just allow a certain sort of breathing, a very gentle breathing, and then you reach this equilibrium and then the water holds you. And that takes a a degree of trust, which also comes with relaxation. Which if we approach meditation without trust and without relaxation, again, we really shouldn't risk building up too much concentration or investigation. So meditation is mindful relaxation. Meditation is mindful concentration. Where the Buddha talked samma, samadhi and the Eightfold Path. The fourth of the Four Noble Truths, Samma Samadhi, the mindful concentration informed by right understanding. It's got mindfulness with it. It's not 
not a kind of a, what's referred to as micha samadhi or, or wrong samadhi, wrong concentration. You know, one of the Buddha's famous disciples, or infamous disciples rather, was his nephew, Devadatta, a real scoundrel, caused all sorts of trouble in the, in the Sangha, you know, tried to cause schisms in the community, you know, challenge the Buddha. Apparently, early on in his life as a monk, he had phenomenally good samadhi of some sort. But it clearly wasn't very mature, it wasn't developed. So mindful samadhi, mindful concentration, emphasis on the mindfulness and the maturity and the care that we bring to our development of concentration. Is it an embodied feeling kind of concentration or is it a disembodied intellectual split off kind of let me get some bliss because I want to get out of this horrible miserable affair. That's not to be encouraged. So meditation is relaxation, meditation is concentration, meditation is investigation. Yes, ultimately, the point of all of these exercises, whether it's daily life practice or formal meditation, is to take the whole body-mind to transformation. Transformation, not just rearranging the furniture, the Buddha wasn't just talking about rearranging the furniture, it was a, a complete rebuild. You know, not just talking about adjusting a little bit of software, it's talking about a completely new operating system. Uh, you know, this transformation of consciousness that the Buddha realized is, is unshakable, irreversible. And so that's the point. And yes, the tool of investigation is a primary tool, uh, but in support of that we need these other elements of meditation. Uh, relaxation, concentration. And then, yes, to be daring as we enter this. A spirit of daring is essential because if we're just following techniques, what other people say, it might be right for somebody else. And you can, you think, why are there so many books and traditions and teachers all saying different things? Why is it this way? That one sounds right, that one sounds right, and yet they're not saying the same thing. I mean, what's going on here? So what it's like approaching a mountain. You know, if you climb a mountain, like Shehalian up in Scotland, you can, you can approach it from 360 degrees. You, know, you come from the west, it looks like that. You come from the east, it looks like that. You come from the south, it looks like that. You come from the north, it looks like that. You, you approach the mountain. The mountain, climbing the mountain is the goal, but where you're coming from determines what it's going to look like and what techniques you need to apply. So it's perfectly understandable that when somebody arrives at a realisation and they reach the peak, that when they talk about the path to reach the peak, it might sound different from somebody else. There doesn't have to be any conflict. Because, but we've got to find out which direction we are coming from, what works for us. Some, some people, the way they teach the Dhamma, yeah, I learned quite a few years ago, I said, well, that just doesn't work for me. Tried that sort of practice and felt like a failure, felt like a hopeless case because I just, I just couldn't do that. I mean, desperately trying, really, really hard. It just didn't work. But after a while, you know, you know falling over a few times and getting a bit hurt here and there, and, or quite seriously hurt actually sometimes, <laughs> coming across something that did start to work. Yeah. And then a natural confidence comes out. Well, then you've got to be careful you don't get all evangelical and start trying to preach your angle to everybody because there can be a lot of enthusiasm for your approach to practice. 
But whichever approach we're taking, it does involve, as far as I can see, the spirit of daring. And actually, I'm also, of course, here quoting Ajahn Chah, when uh, one of the um, monks in our community asked Ajahn Chah, said, Lumpur, there's just there's so many monks in Thailand, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of monks in Thailand, but they don't all teach like you do. They don't seem to have what you've got. You know, you're different. And he says, why are you different? Lumpur, why are you different? And Ajahn Chah said, well, in Thai, the word he says, Pom Gatam, you know, which, which means I was more daring. I was more daring that's what's the essence of this path of practice it's not just understanding yes that's a big part of it but also it's preparing ourselves with the the patience the steadiness the humility the gentleness the kindness and then the daring spirit so thank you very much this evening for your attention (laughs) 